Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Hey there, and thank you so much for tuning in today. So I got an extremely cool doctor on today. He became a medical doctor at the age of 22. Ben Greenfield called him the smartest physician on the planet. He is the founder of the health optimization medicine, which I'll let him explain much more about later as well. He was also one of the pioneers with machine learning, something we talk about as well. And then he's just an extremely cool, fun person. Someone that makes you laugh and just have a good attitude to life. He's also been advising head of stage and top athletes and so on. So I look very much forward to getting into this interview and super proud to have Ted Articocho with me today. Ted was very generous with his time, which means that I divided the episodes into two episodes. One is a full-length episode and another one is a shortened version. Both of them are really cool. The shortened version, we look into nootropics, how you make sure that your body is really ready for nootropics, what health optimization medicine is. In the full length, we also touch upon machine learning and a lot of other cool experiences from Ted's life. So let's get started with this full episode with Ted. Dr. Ted, thank you so much for taking the time. How do you get into being this uh, rock star of a doctor and being a pioneer in what we call uh, artificial intelligence now? Well, it was actually a natural transition for me. I was working in field. I'm a specialist in interventional neuroradiology. And the easy way to understand that is I used to poke brains for a living. <laughs> so... So I was doing a lot of imaging. I was there at the beginning of the development of the CT scans, right? Yeah. And all the way to the development of the MRI. And there were special problems, for example, in MRI development. For example, you had to differentiate the edge of the liver from the lining of the abdominal cavity. And that's called edge detection, right? So you cannot solve that by brute forcing the issue. You can only solve that by taking a look at all the parameters that are in there and being able to see how you can differentiate whether or not a tumor is lying on the abdominal cavity or is lying on the liver itself. But a more fun example of that is that I was going around the world. I was looking for a way to stabilize the head because, well, I was doing, I was poking the brain, right? And you have to stabilize the head so that the skull isn't moving, the brain isn't moving. And when you image, you can basically do your procedure. However, we all know that we all breathe. And so there's a natural, when, when you look at an image, it's going to be blurred by the breathing, yeah. right? And so I went to Russia. They had a mask that you put over the face, you know, and then there are screws on the side between the ear and stabilize the head. Germans are a little bit more cruel. They have screws, you know, on the skull to stabilize the skull. But we still have the same problem of basically the patient breathing. So there is brain movement, right? And while you're doing your procedure. And then I was in Japan and I was watching a, a dryer, a clothes dryer. And I said, how does that detect whether or not the clothes are dry? And they said, oh, you know, there's a chip. It uses fuzzy logic. I said, what the fuck? I need to study fuzzy logic, right? So... I went back to my lab and I coded the fuzzy logic into the algorithm and that accounted for the patient's breathing. 
And pretty soon, it was that kind of artificial intelligence logic that actually stabilized the image so that you could actually do your procedure. So that it was said, we're looking at this all wrong. We're looking at basically holding the head steady, you know, as much as we could. Whereas we can actually use artificial intelligence software to compensate for the breathing and give us a clear image. And that's a real world example of I got into this because there was a need for it. And people don't know that the initial artificial intelligence systems were expert systems. You go to various different experts, ask them their decision tree. How do you decide on something? And then you code that in. And then if it is our if, then if this and that, if this and that. But then came the problem of, okay, you're looking at the slide and how many cancer cells or are there any cancer cells in this slide, right? And so then came the era of neural networks where this what's called supervised learning, where you actually show the data to the neural network and then say that, okay, this, this, this are cancer cells. If you feed them like say 4,000 of those slides, their accuracy in predicting cancer cells when you're looking at them actually goes higher. In fact, there was a paper recently that says, hey, you know, there's this new system. This was just last year or just a few months ago. They said, oh, there's this new system using deep learning, the name for neural networks that can actually predict uh, cancer cells better than pathologists. You know, it's about 60%. And I said, I I had wrote a letter to the editor and said, shit, we were doing that, you know, in in 1990 with 80% accuracy. So I said, just because the paper is not digitized doesn't mean that the paper doesn't exist, right? But but these are the kinds of work that we were doing when you were born. You said you were born in 88. So these are the (laughs) kinds of work that we're already doing. So it comes, you know, what I tell my students, always be curious and allow your curiosity to come in from your area of interest. Like for me, you know, I was an interventional neuroradiologist. There were the problems to get solved. And the first thing that you need to do is to shift perspective, right? Shifting perspective is very important. Like for me, that's a big lesson from stabilizing the skull or the head into keep it. It's okay to, to let it a little bit loose because the software can compensate for all of the different movements and you can still get clear vision. And that's how I got started in this whole thing. But it's just with you, Mads, that I got into some detail about artificial intelligence because when we met in London, I saw that you were interested in it. I usually just keep quiet about this stuff. This <laughs> but it's, stuff it's so means- fascinating and it's also going to be part of the future for medicine. But you're already yes, taking it- a step into this health optimization medicine, the NGO that you started, but also being curious again. How was that? Yes. Um, See, the thing that we do in medicine is, in illness medicine, what I call illness medicine, is that when a patient comes to you, you're already in repair mode. You got to repair the flat tire or you got to change the tire. Like changing a tire is like having a transplant, right? Mm. An organ transplant or you're patching something or an overheated engine. It's just like having a fever from an infection, right? So you're always reactive, like what's causing this fever and you give some antibiotics that are appropriate for the culture, right? So our mode in illness medicine has always been the patient's already sick and do you do some reactive therapeutics, right? And you do a retrospective diagnostics is after the fact. You're taking a look after the fact. But then what we haven't realized is that all, all these years, I graduated from med school in 84, and all these years, new technologies have developed already, right? 
For example, if you take a look at the dashboard of a car right now, you could see that there's already an indicator for your tire pressure. So your tire pressure is running low. So it's the same thing as saying, hey, your alpha lipoic acid is running low. Time to top it up. Yeah. Right? Or, hey, your engine is running a little too hot. You know, hey, your detoxification system, like your glutathione and your lipid peroxidases and, and, and so on, they're all rising, which means your body's getting inflamed. So the technology to detect all of these metabolites or small molecules have advanced and they are now in our clinics. So now we are able to go into a maintenance mode instead of just a repair mode. And people are always, when, when I say I do health maintenance, right? Because no one has been maintaining health before. Our cars are actually luckier because you have a light. Every 3,000 miles, you go and they get your car maintained. We don't have such a light in our system, but now we do know that we can actually detect and pop off you know, before they get into overt deficiency or toxicity, right? What's going on inside the body. And that's what I want to do is that before we are just totally dependent on pathology, right? Or what's the disease? How do we diagnose the disease? What's the treatment? It's usually pharmacology or surgery, right? But now you said, okay, you know, what's borderline deficient? What's subtly toxic? You know, they're not full-blown, but it asks you to top off or you, it asks you to get an oil change or something like that. That's possible now. So that's the kind of thing that I'm doing is putting in the other half of medicine, which is the maintenance medicine. Does it prevent diseases? It may, but I don't make any claims, right? No. Because preventing <clears throat> medicine is a different thing altogether. So the one thing that I really like doing MADS is defining, you know, people said, oh, I'm healthy. Yeah, how do you define health, right? So I defined health as this optimal, I said, physical, optimal physiological state, you know, that is a balance between processes that grow or anabolic processes and processes that destroy or catabolic processes inside your body according to the life cycle of your life cycle. The way to think about this is really very simple. You know, I hate magazines that say, these are the best exercises for your core. Yeah, for what age, dude? <laughs> you know? True. <laughs> or magazines that say, or podcasts that say, you should become a morning person and wake up early in the morning. Dude, that's not my chronotype. My chronotype is different. You know, we know all of these things now. So just to show you how we have advanced in this thinking about health, right? So health, it's the absence of disease. Health is A plus B plus C. I always say that. A is the absence of disease. That's illness medicine, right? Yeah. And B, the balance between anabolic and catabolic processes, you know, according to C, the life cycle of the organism. So when you're younger, you're slightly more anabolic. When you're older, it's slightly more catabolic. And the health that you want to bring is for you to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And people are talking about optimization all the time, right? So what do you mean by getting fucking optimized? So what is it? For me, it's like, okay, if you're measuring all of these metabolites, you realize that these metabolites are all in a network. In and metabolites, words, can you say a word on what that is? Metabolites are actually small molecules that are found inside your cells that are the result of the functioning of the cell. It's like a factory, right? It's like all of the things that are being produced inside the cell in order to make something else work, right? Like, for example, hormones or nutrients. These are small molecule metabolites. Yeah. Now, we are now able to apply that in the clinics. 
the field is now 40 years old. It's about time it became clinical, right? So now we can detect whether or not your alpha lipoic acid is running low, or if your vitamin A, C, E, you know, is running low, or your CoQ, you need CoQ10, or your oxidative stress is running high, we could measure, you know, all of your defenses against oxidative stress. Those are already possible. It was not possible before. So we now use these small molecules called metabolites to, they're the tire pressure gauge that's in your dashboard now, that you can see whether or not you're deflating. So these kinds of technologies are now available, and it's about time that we incorporated them in healthcare. So if you're doing disease management, you should also do health management, right? And I chose metabolites rather than genes or DNA, because the farther you move away from the genes, the more you see the effect of the environment. For example, if you love eating fish that has high mercury content, it will show in your metabolite test, right, that your cold blood mercury is actually running high, right? But you will never see that in DNA. And what about normal blood testing and metabolites? The normal blood testing is that we're only used to looking at disease markers, right? We're not used to looking at metabolite markers. For disease markers, like, for example, we take a look at HbA1c for diabetes, right? Or fasting blood sugar. Yeah. You know? And for me, in my practice, I test for fasting insulin because it's also important for how much your pancreas is producing and whether or not you're insulin resistant, right? All of these are in the context of managing a disease, right? Or or do you have a marker for a disease, right? But for me, what I'm trying to measure are metabolic markers. Do you have the metabolic markers for health, right? So my endpoint is different. So when you discuss optimization, the way I say this is that if the World Trade Center were never bombed, no one would ever know the extent by which people tried to prevent it, right? And that's just like optimization. You are looking at borderline deficiencies, subtle toxicities in your vitamins, minerals, nutrients, hormones, etc. And for me, I'm moving them to the range when you were between 21 to 30 years old. So you, Mads, you need to be adjusted now by a year. (laughs) (laughs) That's doable. Uh, Yeah, because that's what's considered the optimal range or the golden period, right, for production and so on. But it's already becoming bothersome because you can see that even at that range now, testosterone levels in that range is also falling because of a lot of environmental pollutants, right, the chemical disruptors or endocrine disruptor compounds. But where else are we going to tie our optimization, right? So your proof is that you're able to move those values, right, as a whole. You're able to move those values as a whole, as a network, into that particular age range. And the way to think about this is really very simple in terms of opposites. For example, in the winter, people take a lot of zinc, right? They take zinc for whatever, even if they don't need it because it's available and they say colds, you know, you're going to be protected from colds and so on and so forth. Well, actually, when you take too much of it, you'll be actually peeing out your, your copper, because there is a zinc-copper balance. So with uh, metabolomics, you could see all of those happening. And that's what I mean by networks. These things are conjoined to each other by some way. And you don't know if you push one, which particular parts you push. We know the major ones. Yeah. You know, for example, if you raise cortisol in the body, like stress, you're going to dampen growth hormone production. So these are the kinds of things that we we already know, but there are other uh, interactions, just like in neural networks and highly networked systems, there are emergent behaviors that you could not anticipate, you know, that's coming out. 
So that's what I mean by optimization. So you have health and then optimization, bring them to the level between 21 and 30. And then medicine. So medicine, the practice is really very simple for medicine. Is uh, The first thing that I do is actually give what I call the bioidentical, bioactive molecules that are actually being used by the body itself. An example of that is that I don't use cyanocobalamin, you know, because that's a cyanide is an artifact of uh, production of cobalamin. Instead, I use either methylcobalamin or hydroxycobalamin. But even then, you know, you know that hydroxycobalamin will localize in the, in, in, in the cytosol, methylcobalamin will localize in mitochondria. So we now know this stuff, whereas in medical school, it was just cobalamin was cobalamin. You know, it's already 2019. I, I, mean, I mean, from 1984 to 2019, there, there are advances in basic science that are now contributing to this. Uh, I, I say this because I was uh, very, very annoyed when I was asking for CME credits for a lecture I was giving on mitochondria, and the professional commission said, oh no, you, you cannot give uh, professional credits for this because this is basic. The doctor should already know that. It's as if basic science were static. And medicine has nowhere to go but down. After you go into the organs, you go to the cells, and now you have to go through, you know, inside the cell, you have nowhere to go in terms of your expansion is actually inward rather than outward. Um, and you, you get smaller and smaller. So that's the first level is bioidenticals, bioactives. The second level is uh, plants, botanicals, fungicidicals, bacteriophages, etc. And they put them there as a second level. It's because while well, you eat them in food, however, when you try to commercialize them, it's difficult to maintain the quality. Right. And the example for this uh, that I like to give is when they were using uh, Uricoma longifolia, that's a tonkat ali, you know, to raise testosterone levels. In the studies, it was raising testosterone levels. Well, it was shown that when uh, they were doing this, they were harvesting the tonkat ali from the higher part, higher elevation of the mountain. And then the one that was used in production was uh, harvested from the bottom of the mountain. That was not raising testosterone. So you see the difficulty in using botanicals. Yes. Right? For example, when I'm trying to, to fix the gut, right, and uh, the gut microbiota, I prefer using natural antibiotics, you know, like berberine, uh, uva urasi, oregano oil. You know, these kinds of things, they are gentler to the other healthy microbiota in the gut rather than using an outright nice statin to kill the candida. I, you know, I, I would use Pseudowintera colorata for, for fungal infection. So, so these are, once I see that, that it's been standardized and uh, uh, you know, they have good clinical test results and I'm assured that they're getting it from where they're getting it, which is the, the clean source, then um, I, I do recommend it or tend to recommend it. And then um, the, the last, uh, and people think I'm anti-drug. I'm not at all. You know, it's just, it's the last thing that I give only because the body usually has not encountered it in its evolution. You know, the body has not encountered methotrexate or it has not encountered all of these uh, wonderful drugs that we have. I, I'm not saying I'm opposed to them. I mean, if, if you have a, you're, you're having some, some fulminant uh, infection or uh, some acute infection or some appendicitis, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you need to get the, to get that antibiotic with proper culture and you need to get that appendix removed and so on and so forth. But where we are failing is actually at the chronic level. You know, illness medicine is, has a dismal record in taking care of chronic diseases. And um, 
you know, uh, Aubrey de Grey is big in lecturing in this, and he was in London last September, and he put it again in his uh, in his lecture where these chronic diseases, you know, oh, we we are actually looking at them as separate diseases when they're actually the part that we should take out of aging, right? So chronic part is the part that that's bothersome in terms of aging. You're not just trying to make people live longer, but you're more into like living good lives. Yes, I am after the quality of life. I have that uh, a favorite story, right? Eos and Tithonus, where Eos is the goddess of dawn, you know, and Tithonus is the son of the king of Troy. He's mortal. And Eos was so in love with him and wanted him to be mortal, didn't want him to die. So he asked uh, Zeus to make him mortal. So became, he became immortal. But he kept getting older and older. She was uh, full of compassion for him. She turned him into a cicada. And so the moral of the story is, if you want immortality, which is what illness medicine is asking for, don't forget to ask for eternal youth, which is what health optimization medicine is asking for, right? Yes. So it's health and vitality versus uh, immortality. It's not a versus, it's actually part and parcel of uh, what healthcare should be. I, uh, be personally, I'd, I'd rather live a uh, a life uh, that's pain-free and of high quality and short rather than, you know, get to 106 and be sick. At least in the Western system or here in Denmark, we keep people alive sometimes longer than they actually wish for. And they're living a painful life in the last years instead of instead of ending in a, in a better way. So for me, it's also like I want to live a healthy life and then someday I want to leave the earth without just living to 102 many and be sick. If I can transfer my consciousness to uh, uh, a synthetic uh, uh, body, I would be happy to be in silico. Um, yeah. uh, however, uh, I would like to have a push-button orgasm. You know, just... yeah. <laughs> but but uh, but anyway, um, the, the reason why I started health optimization medicine, which is for doctors, and health optimization practice for non-doctors, ten years ago, is precisely because we have these developments now like clinical metabolomics, as I discussed, right? But we also have the uh, developments in bioenergetics, which is the mitochondria, right? The gut immune system, uh, essentially the gut microbiota. We have exposomics or, you know, your, your environmental exposure to toxins. Uh, uh, there is uh, chronobiology, right? Your, your circadian time. There's evolutionary medicine. So you could see that all of these, uh, they, these are what I call the seven pillars of health optimization. They were never taught to us in, in medical school, right? And there is, of course, our studies in epigenetics. If you take a look at all the studies that have come out this year, it's about the different types of cellular clocks, right? There's the Horvath clock, basically two types of clocks that have come out. One are chronological clocks, meaning how old is your cell versus your chronological age, right? And there's the Horvath clock, there's the skin and blood clock, there's a phenotype, the phenoage clock, etc. These are based on the epigenetics, the methylation on what's called DNAM or DNA methylation. So we're now looking at this and first is time for birth clocks and the others are time to die clocks yeah. or time, time to morbidity uh, clocks, so time to your first uh, heart attack, time to your first cancer, time for this and that. And the current clock that's available out there is called the Green Age clock, which is really very interesting because just by looking at the DNA methylation uh, without without the mutation in the DNA or so on, just the methylation and superimposing it 
with the data from smokers, they could actually predict also, you know, your first heart attack, your, even if you're a non-smoker. And this is large data. Of course, it's done by neural networks. How else are you going to do this is by, by artificial intelligence, right? Before you had to, to train the AI in terms of the data set, right? Now it's unsupervised, what's called unsupervised learning. It's yeah. just basically the, the system's making inferences of its own and coming out. That's why you could see all of this dumbed down writing of artificial intelligence like, oh, this is making a decision on this and we don't know how it is. It's the same thing that's called unsupervised learning. You do know what the weighting is. You could take a peek at what it's doing, but you could never really fully know what's going on inside when the system is running. Now they simply superimposed the the data from smokers. This is about what, I think 4,500 subjects. Yeah. From the Framingham Heart Study, which is, you know, the revered data set for many of the illness medicine studies. And it's really quite interesting that even for non-smokers, they could predict when you're going to get your first cancer, when you're going to get your first heart attack. And so it, this, these things are big. You yeah. Know? And, and then now um, we're not talking about since I'm board certified in anti-aging medicine and nutritional medicine. Before it was just like slowing aging. Now it's not age reversal. Right. So they just showed a study this September of, uh, I think, nine white men uh, who took growth hormone and DHEA and metformin, you know, and you know what it did was it changed the epigenetic marker distribution such that by the Horvath clock, they were two and a half years younger. That's right? And for people that don't know what epigenetics are. If there's any of the listeners that never heard that before. Epigenetics is, is actually very simple. So my quarrel right now, it's not a quarrel, actually, it's a complaint. Everyone is so DNA-centric, right? Yeah. Everyone is focused on the DNA. But what people should understand is that uh, gene regulation or the regulation of the genes inside the DNA does not only occur within the gene itself. It's also the, the, those, the DNA is actually has a binding sites in it. In the chromatin, it's, it's in, called chromatin material. It's compact. The, the DNA is actually about six yards long when you extend it, and it's coiled, right? And it has chromatin material in it, and then it's wrapped in proteins called histones, like a, a yo-yo. This is the, you can consider it's an outer covering that does another regulation for the DNA. I always like to tell people that Time Magazine got it right in their old issue when they say, why DNA is not your destiny? It's just because you have the gene doesn't mean that it's going to get expressed, right? Uh, for example, when a particular site is methylated, it could suppress a cancer gene, right? So, or, or when a, a DNA site is, is methylated, it could signify that you're actually, uh, uh, it could signify that you're actually one of the genes involved in the anti-aging process or keeping you young. So, this we can measure this now because we could measure how much of this methyl groups these are molecules that attach uh, how much of them are actually attached to cytosine portion of the dna again this is now the dna based pairs i hope that everyone has had a basic high school biology we could measure this now but this is the patterns like this actually developed all through life the way of thinking of epigenetics is that you're not you're not only passing on your dna Epigenetic changes that are in your in your histones that are in your uh, methylated portions of your 
cytosine, they are also inherited. So for example, if you're wanting to get pregnant, or you're wanting to have a family and so on, if the mother is a smoker, the mother actually changes the epigenome such that it affects the unborn child and the reproductive system of that unborn child. So it's three generations affected right away. Whereas your DNA will only affect the next generation. Each uh, particular pillar that I chose has now boomed. At first, you know, mitochondria boomed, and now yeah, it's microbiome that's booming. All of them, you know, all studies are becoming very clinical. And then now you have epigenetics is booming, and now people are paying attention to toxins. Yeah, the toxins that people are talking about is uh, phototoxicity, the light toxicity. Why do you think we have these blue light filters, etc.? It's not just substances like mercury or smoking or glyphosate, you know? Your work environment, the air that you breathe, etc. That's also booming in terms of what's being studied in the conferences that I've attended. There's now even an expert on the environmental microbiota and now how they could influence you. There was a funny um, uh, speaker before. He said, maybe uh, for for the diversity of a microbiota for men, you know, it is better not to wash your hands after you pee, but only after you poop. But that's, that's just a funny way of, <laughs> of remembering. It's just a funny way of remembering, you know, that you are affected by all of this. That's where I want to get into the the subject of uh, actually what's, what's called a holobiont, right? Yeah. And we are used to thinking of ourselves as an individual, an individual within an environment. So we have human populations, right, that live in an environment. And uh, in order to, for us to transition to a better medical practice or to better health practice, we have to look at the body itself as an ecosystem. The body itself is an ecosystem, and we have to start treating our microbiota as part of us. You know, they're growing us, they're, they're inside us. And in fact, they control us. That's the reason why I explained epigenetics earlier, thank you for asking, is that uh, before um, it was, uh, and, and many people still don't know this, it's taboo for bacteria to talk to human cells, right? Because that's what's called a prokaryotic, eukaryotic communication. But they found out that bacteria can actually have vesicles in them that contain some RNA, and they fuse into your intestinal cells, and then they start, this RNA start controlling your DNA without you consciously knowing of it. So you could see now how your gut bacteria is now related to depression, is now related to, you know, all of these diseases that we never associated it with. And it's a big organ. It's about uh, two kilos right there. So we have to consider ourselves as a holobiont. I know your mads are big in the biohacking community. I, I say let's move it to the biont hacking uh, perspective. You know, you hack your holob- you, you hack your biont's. Your because uh, in in the cells that you have, for example, you see them as a cell, and the mitochondria inside the cell are simply organelles. But those are bacteria. Yeah, your mitochondria are bacteria that live inside your cell, right? You have an average about 500 per cell, uh, higher in the liver and the brain, for example. It's about one to 2,000 per cell. Um, and they divide the bacteria. The red blood cells don't have them, but they have them initially, right? Because they are the, the beginning of hemoglobin. They, they actually are where the hemoglobin is derived from. They have iron sulfur clusters. Many doctors forget that, you know, that uh, they come from a mitochondria and mitochondria, mitochondria is actually eaten out by uh, mitophagy and you get your hemoglobin structure in there. So these are bacteria. 
and your uh, where they're housed in is a symbiotic relationship is an anaerobic bacterium where your sugar is processed without oxygen. It's a process called glycolysis, and, and many runners know this because when you're a sprinter and you, you cannot provide uh, a lot of oxygen to your mitochondria, your, your glycolysis uh, 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 pathway will kick, it will kick in to provide you the energy that you need, albeit at very low levels. That's why you see these sprinters have very big thighs, right? They have very big thighs because they have to store the glycogen in there so that they could actually tear it down for energy because the mitochondria cannot be supplied with enough oxygen and they're running way, way, way too fast because your circulatory system just cannot do that. But if you take a look at endurance runners like the Kenyans and so on, you see them, they're tall, they're slender, they run in a very relaxed manner, they're marathoners, Yeah. right? They're able to uh, to mobilize their mitochondria because they're able to put oxygen in there. But you see, this is an interaction already of two organisms inside you. So we're made up of all of these separate organisms, really. And we're looking at us as one whole, but we're actually we're an ecosystem of organisms. And when we start doing that, then we can start beyond hacking rather than simply biohacking. You know, there, there are really um, a crazy... Biohackers, I, I, I admire them. You know, they have a lot of courage and where they just, they just inject all of these, uh, CRISPR Cas9 type, uh, 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 altered organism, you know, for example, to, uh, produce the myostatin gene, you know, so, so they can be more muscular and, and so on. But, you know, those, those are really brave people. I said with them. But what I'd like to, to do is to have health optimization medicine and practice actually incorporated into the physician's practice or into the health practitioner's practice. And therefore, my dictum is that we measure. Everything can be measured now. We measure those uh, that's giving you warning lights, right, in your dashboard, and then you supplement them in a network manner. it's, you know, you still see a lot of articles now. Oh, is vitamin C good for you? Is vitamin E good for you? Well, fuck that, right? They asked me, Dr. Ted, is, you know, vitamin E good for me because of the blah, blah, blah. It says in this article. And I said, well, measure it. Yeah. <laughs> you have appropriate levels. If you do, then you don't probably need it, right? Yeah. So we're, you don't supplement it. And that's the way with anything. Uh, people always tell me, oh, Dr. Ted, you know, this is really a very uh, expensive uh, thing to do. You get it measured, et cetera, et cetera. What for are you earning your money if you're not going to invest it in your health? But, you know, I can't say that to people. It's just like anything. When the MRI first came out, it was $4,000 per Right. And then we got into the $2,000 mark. We got into the $1,000 mark. And now we're at the $600 mark. And it's getting cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. Even if it were the $4,000 mark, Mads, people were getting it or doctors are ordering it. So I I tell them, so, you know, why are you ordering all of these expensive tests when they were still very, very expensive? Right. Yeah. So as in all things, if there's more utilization of something, the more that it spreads that you could actually do maintenance now rather than repair, then you're OK. Right? Yeah. And then you have a whole section on not doing all of these nootropics that people are talking about before you actually got your health <laughs> up running. Yes, that's a major theme that I actually teach my students who are, you know, doctors and practitioners from around the world is that you cannot have any performance optimization unless you have health optimization, Mm. right? So 
That's fundamental because a lot of people just like and many gurus out there in health are always teaching about performance optimization. Well, how can you have performance optimization when your basic cell isn't healthy? Now, let's take this to the brain because I know that we've created quite a stir with our methylene blue product, right? Blue canatine, which has methylene blue, caffeine, CBD, you know, and nicotine. But when I formulated that, you know, I actually was making sure that before trying it on myself, my neurons, or at least my neurotransmitters, were optimized. And how do I do that? You do that by metabolomics also. You check the metabolites. You see that there are several metabolites that you could test just from urine and correlated with your platelets, right? You can test for the metabolites of dopamine, which is responsible for your focus or for your reward. It's what's raised by cocaine. For example, when you take cocaine, dopamine rises by 400 times than usual. That's why you feel invincible. I've never tried it. I've never had the guts to try it. And then there is, of course, serotonin, which is regarded by people as their happy hormone. Remember, neurotransmitters are neurohormones. They are hormones in themselves. So serotonin is responsible for your sensory satisfaction, right? And then there is, of course, epinephrine, norepinephrine, which is responsible for your wakefulness and awareness. If you could see a focused athlete, for example, you know, you could see that epinephrine levels are actually, it's at the right level and the open level at the right level. You could see that he's actually performing at the top of his game because the brain has optimal levels of the neurotransmitters. You could also measure, for example, kynurenin, which is part of the inflammatory signal of the brain. Of course, there's, uh, you know, there will be tests for GABA and so on and so forth. Interestingly, GABA is very important because many people uh, don't have any sleep now. It's too bad that GHB is now illegal, right? Because ever since it was branded as a date rape drug, it went away. But it's actually a downstream, that's a downstream metabolite of GABA, which is to sleep, right? Mm -hmm. That puts you to, to sleep. So interestingly, as the major inhibitory neurotransmitter of the brain, you Danes probably have a lot of it because you're very conservative. They found out that people who have a more conservative outlook have a lot more of GABA in the brain. So, <laughs> and they actually measured this in people who are here, it is a test here in the States, so people who are voting Democratic or Republican. So those who are voting Republican tended to have more GABA in their brain, tended to sleep more better at night, despite the fact that the world is going to hell, you know, and so on. Whereas, you know, the Democrats have very much less and more insomnia and so on. But it's a major break, right, yeah. in terms of thinking. And, and you would test that with a urine test, an organic acid test, or how would you test that? That's in the organic acid test, which correlated yeah. with the blood platelet. It's all there. So once you see that you've adjusted that, then you can optimize now. Your urine is now, your brain cells are now optimized. And when they're optimized like that, then you could actually ask now for performance. It's just like, I don't know if you guys lived through this generation, but I tinkered with microchips a lot of computers, and there's a way of actually overclocking the computer so that you can get more computing performance out of them, right? And before, when I tried to overclock this, they would actually heat up, and that's because they're not really meant for that, right? Yeah. And that's what I mean. If you are not going to help optimize your brain first, your neurons first, with the proper neurotransmitters and having no brain inflammation and, and so forth, then you cannot overclock it. You cannot ask for performance from it.
you know people are taking you know so many nootropics now it's a huge topic you know it's been a passion of mine for the past 15 years really i've been studying that area and i disagree with many people on how they define nootropics now for me the first characteristic of a nootropic should be it should be neuroprotective first it should protect your brain before it overclocks performance it should first protect your brain so okay so if you guys are going to insist on taking loads and loads of what nicotine and all of these things you know then why don't we do health optimization as the neuroprotective and then we could give you these things to overclock your performance remember that what we want to do here is whenever you overclock your body will compensate you will get deficiencies and so on. of course it will get tired right you cannot sustain dopamine production for long periods of time. If you give dopamine directly, you will also flatten out the dopamine receptors in the brain. You know, the body knows how to keep itself at equilibrium, sometimes at your expense, right? It's painful for you, but it's the body trying to protect um, itself. To protect itself. It's just like one of the things now in evolutionary medicine, right? The way that some doctors are now looking at cancer and the way they're studying it is that it's a mechanism of the cell to want to continue to survive. So it breaks away from the ranks of cooperation because the rest are dying. And he says, no, I want to survive. And that's from the evolutionary imperative of the cell. So it's imperative for us to also move our perspective towards the cell, towards the, the biont or the organism itself and see what it's trying to do, right? If we are a forest or an ecosystem, we have our own checks and balances. We're just discovering what those checks and balances are now, right? So in terms of the brain, yeah, we've done a lot of work on the brain, you know, to image it, et cetera, but it's only now that we're trying to see, hey, you know, we used to think, you know, I, I worked on a, a very esoteric research because when I went to the lab, when I entered the lab in 1988, my mentor asked me, he said, is consciousness computable? And I said, yeah. And he says, is beauty computable? And I said, yeah. And he said, no, you get to choose only one problem. <laughs> I should have chosen beauty. I, I should have chosen beauty. I should have been very rich when I was younger. But I chose consciousness. And at the time, I belonged to the camp, which is now being tested by quantum computing, that the consciousness is an emergent property very complex systems, right? That the internet, for example, as it becomes more and more complex, has its own oscillations now. And we can call that consciousness or its own consciousness or awareness. And I belong to that camp that those are emergent properties. And before we used to think that, and the reason why I say that is it's a property of our brain networks, for example, that when you present it, say, with a tail of a horse, it will assume that the entire horse, and you ask, how does it do that, you know? And it does that by, by instantaneous coalitions of all of these networks within us, which are momentary. You know, you, can, you cannot really see them. But if you take a look at an evolutionary perspective and how these things develop, you see that, you know, before it was one plus one equals two, then with increasing complexity, everything became one plus one equals four equals 10 and so on, because we, we ourselves as humans now do not understand how complex we are. But for the handles that we have, if we are able to get markers by which we can handle it and put ourselves to better health and then overclock our performance while being able to return us into an optimal state right away right? Then that would be better for us. What I tell my patients and my clients is this, my goal 
for you, I said, you can have your goals. My goal for you is to get you addicted to the feeling of wellness, right? So that when you get away from the feeling of wellness, say you ate a piece of cake, you will feel so rotten that you say, I'm never going to do that again, right? So, <laughs> so you always try to maintain that balance, right? And the balance will go back and forth, back and forth, but you know what it feels. And yeah. there was a client who said, there are different kinds of clients. And for example, there's a client that goes, Dr. Ted, I've been under your care for a year now and I haven't felt anything. And I go, okay, uh, how many times have you, before me, how many times did you get sick in a year? Oh, about six times, you know, colds and, and cough and infection and stuff. I said, well, what about this year? He's like, oh my God, you know, I haven't had any illness yet. And I said, you know, what I'm doing is kind of like that. It's a rear view mirror kind of thing. You know, you're not looking forward. I said, let's look back at what happened to you. I said, how many projects were you handling last year? I said, oh, just one. How many projects are you handling this year? Four. So, yeah, you have much more energy to do things. I said, if you're not aware, because these things take time, you know, if you're, you're not aware, then you're seeing like, hey, I have no effect. But for other people who, especially men, they say, you know, I don't need this because, you know, I'm feeling okay. My wife just got to push through. I'm tough. Yeah. Yeah. No, and my wife just wants me to do this because I cannot perform anymore. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it's a strong motivator, right? The two big motivators are that and vanity. So one said, six months later, he said, shit, you know, I thought I already felt good. I didn't know that it was possible to feel this way. So there's that part. The difficult part of the practice, Maz, is that it's experiential. Most of the doctors, when I started this 10 years ago, there are many doctors who were opposed to me and actually said nasty things about what I was doing. And then now, you know, 10 years later, they have gotten old too. And they said, yeah. Dad, please, we're sorry now. We actually believe in what you're saying. I said, it's not a matter of belief. The science is there. Yeah. You know, all I'm asking is for us to, aside from pathology, is to take a look at what you know, what makes us healthy. I introduced three terms, salutology, which is the study of health itself. But study of health itself is done in populations, right? Yeah. So again, we know that health is actually an individual thing. We cannot, uh, but they provide a good baseline. For example, if you exercise X times a week, then, you know, you're probably likely to have a better outcomes and so on and so forth. But my quarrel with that is when you put it to health optimization, say, I want to prevent heart disease and I want to prevent Alzheimer's and I want to prevent diabetes because my mother has it. And suddenly you're faced with the American Heart Association guidelines for prevention of heart disease, you know, the diabetes guidelines for prevention of diabetes, you know, you're faced with all of these guidelines and what do you follow? So that's what happens when you do it via salutology. So yeah, it works well in vaccination and all those kinds of issues where population is concerned. But when individual health is concerned, it's a good baseline, but it won't work, right? So the next term there is neotenology. And I love the term because neoteny is a concept of making something more young or making something younger. And my favorite slide here when I lecture is that of Mickey Mouse. When he first came out in 1928, the snout was very long, right? It was an adult mouse. It was not lovable. In 1928, through the years, he's been made to look like an infant that's so cute, right? A high forehead, 
button nose, a receiving chain that's not was pushed towards the face and very large eyes. You know, it's like, oh, you know, it elicits all of these elements of nurture. Hey, you know, humans are actually programmed to take care of their young. That's why the young look that way. But the process of neotenization that I mean is not in looks, but our metabolic networks, you know, we, we make them younger to 21 to 30, right? So when you check them, they actually are at a younger age. And that's what I mean by neotenization. And what's something the, very concrete that you would do with a person? So you would test them either like a urine test or like some blood test, and then you would analyze I, I, from those. Yes, I generally take three tests. One is uh, three samples is blood, urine, and stool. Yeah. And then they're tested for food sensitivity. IgG4 uh, or? IgG4. Yes. IgG4, food sensitivity testing. And then there's uh, organic acids testing. And then, of course, there's the stool test for, you know, your short-chain fatty acids, coprotectin, and all of that. All of those that we know are actually already being used. For example, SCFA or short-chain fatty acids, we know is a major food of the colon cells, right? And even in medical journals, illness medicine journals, they know that very low levels of short-chain fatty acids is associated with colon cancer. And there are now enteric-coated capsules that you can take to to supplement your butyrate, especially if you're traveling, for example, and you cannot eat much vegetables. Or if you're in Italy who, you know, they seem to not like green leafy vegetables. Yeah. Those are the three major tests. And then you develop a protocol. Yeah. Right? So like um, urine test, organic acid test, the blood test for food sensitivities, and yes, then the stool test. The, yes. The blood test is also for the plasma amino acids. Okay. Because I essentially, I want to see what are your macronutrients? You know, yeah. what are the components of your proteins? What are the amino acids looking like? You know, for example, if you're seeing like, hey, why is taurine very low? You know, and in this patient, then you could, it's a sulfur-containing amino acid, you know, take a look at other sulfur-containing amino acids. Is there anything binding to the sulfur and so on? So you could see why this is low. You could already see it way ahead of time. There are already studies right now that show that taurine levels drop to very low levels right before a heart attack. You know, this is now the clinical measure of it, but you're already seeing it way ahead of time. You know, this is what's the beauty of it is that it's a warning light. You're seeing it way ahead of time. You have months to actually do something about it or at least three months to do something about the problem. The fatty acids, we also take a look at the fatty acids. You know, many doctors now prescribe too much omega-3 and you see that the omega-3 are actually way off the charts and omega-3 and omega-6 are in balance. So they actually upset the balance and omega-6 levels go down, right? As I said, in the body, the body has its own checks and balances. So I have now to supplement with omega-6 just so, so that the omega-3 levels will just come down back to, to regular levels. You know that omega-3s are good for you, yeah. but they're also very, very rapidly oxidized because they have more bonds that can be oxidized, right? So that's the macronutrients. And of course, for your carbohydrates, you take a look at your metabolism, metabolism of glucose. You could see now, and this is where the doctors actually hate me because you can see now the metabolites of the Krebs cycle, which is the, and the electron transportation, which is the energy producing portion of the mitochondria, right? And we used to memorize that in medical school, but now you can measure them and you can say, okay, so what's the meaning if it's low or high? It means that you're 
micronutrients are insufficient because, for example, you need vitamin B1, B2, B3, B5, lipoic acid, you know, for that whole energy mechanism to function properly, right? You need CoQ10. So you could see all of those levels and you could actually optimize those, optimize those levels, put them at the levels that are optimal for the person. And so those are the macronutrients that you look at. The first thing I look at is actually to scare the patient or the client, I usually yeah. look at toxins first. Yeah. Okay, here, look, your, your mercury and cadmium levels are very high, you know. Is and, that through and, blood and, or through hair? That's, or through that's your... whole blood. Okay. That's whole blood. Yeah. So that's the first thing that I show. Is I show them from without to within. Yeah. So you see, here is what you're taking in, and then I show them the stool test because the result of their gut test, yeah. right? How healthy is your gut? So here you have a leaky gut, here the microorganisms, you have potentially pathogenic organisms, you have low short-chain fatty acids, you have indicator for intestinal bowel disease, and, and so on and so forth. So they see, the important thing that I want your listeners to remember is that your gut bacteria pre-process everything that you eat, right? Everything that you put inside your mouth and swallow, it will pre-process that. So all of these studies that we say, okay, this is a randomized double-blind study, blah, 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 you know, well, you did not control for the gut microbiota. Really, if it's an oral drug, the drug is actually doing something with it. In fact, one of the cancer drugs that had success in some people and failure in some people, they found out that the failure in some people because there was a lack of two species of bifidobacteria inside the gut. That's why the drug was failing. So it's important to remember that it pre-processes everything, right? That that you eat. And e even just by thinking about that, you already know how to interpret the studies that you read or articles that you read about that. And after the gut health, then I go inside the cell. Here are your macronutrients. Here's the status of your proteins. You know, you've not been eating enough meat, etc. You can also catch people who lie, right? Oh, I don't eat chicken. And you could see, you know, you know, answering and sarcosine are very high. It's like, sure, you know, you don't eat chicken. <laughs> but it, it's, 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 it's funny. Yeah, it's all there. And then after the macronutrients for proteins, carbohydrates, and fat components, I go to your micronutrients because they drive all the reactions forward. So these are your vitamins, minerals, etc. And then I go to the special systems, like what are your neurotransmitters looking like? How's your detoxification looking like? How's your antioxidants looking like? Your glutathione levels? You know, how fast are your cell membranes rusting? you know, from oxidation. And we can even pick up the oxidation of the DNA, which is used as a marker for keeping an eye out for the development of cancers, right? Even before the illness marker for cancer comes about, you could pick up some DNA oxidation already happening. So yeah, as I said, these are early warning systems. These are these, the this is your early warning system. Yeah. So that's what I do. And then move those to optimal levels or take out the tox as much of the toxins as you could and so forth. And that's how you do neotenology, right? And then the last one is holobiontology, which I already discussed, which is treating the body as an ecosystem of organisms, right? And that organisms, they're beneath our consciousness or under our consciousness. They are talking. We don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> so talking about us. Yeah, we, we, so we better be kind to them. Yeah. So, so, so they keep our ecosystems intact, right? Otherwise, they'll destroy it, and uh, you have accelerated aging, diseases, and death. So that's the whole point. That's what I call, with the complex term, you know, salu neoteno holobiontology, or SNH for short. 
And I said, if you cannot remember that, just remember smarter, not harder ology. So <laughs> that, <laughs> that's a better one. Smart, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This is being smart. You don't have to work hard for your health. You know, it's just like the same advice. You don't have to lift heavier weights. You just have to be smarter with the way you work out. Yeah. Right? So you mentioned the IgG4 food sensitivity mm-hmm. test. I got that done as well for my functional doctor here in Denmark. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy with it, but I also have a lot of critique on it. So what, what do you think the people that are critiquing the test have misunderstood? I think people are critiquing the test haven't really used it in the clinics. Yeah. So <laughs> that's my main critique because I've been using it for 10 years, right? And people who are who are saying, well, it doesn't work, et cetera. Yeah, but do you practice? You know, what's your experience with it? For me, it was the only test available at the time. And if I develop a very simple way of actually dealing with, with this, because, you know, knocking out the foods that you're sensitive to and, and so on, That's a very involved process. I, I just have a very simple guideline on how to go about it. And essentially, all of my clients and patients have gotten better by just eliminating you know, things that are in, in there and then reintroducing them at a general time. You know, uh, And how soon after? My, you know, what I what I do is I make them eliminate everything, even the slight, the all of for six months. Six months. Six months, okay. yes. And after that, you know, even if, for example, even if you haven't gotten the, the sensitivity test, if you just just humor me, remove all, I know it's going to be difficult, but remove all milk and milk products and all grain and grain products from your diet for six months. You will already feel better, right? It's up to you if you want to return, but just do that, that simple experiment. Or what the heck, just give me two weeks or four weeks, you know, just do that and see how you feel. Yeah. Because the inflammation, inflammation generally goes down. We are, we're actually uh, weird species. I, I like saying this, we're a weird species. We actually like drinking the milk of other species, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and grain and grain products, of course, are notorious because we had to feed the, you know, a huge population. We did it by grain and just, just by necessity. But what's by necessity is not necessarily what's optimal for you, right? It's just like the guidelines for nutrition will say, the recommended dietary allowance is this, it's an RDA, that's a survival value, right? That's not an optimal value. It just allows you to survive. Yeah. Right? So there's a difference between optimization and just trying to survive, right? And people ask me all the time, you know, Dr. Ted, what's a high quality life for you? On its most fundamental basis, a high quality life is a life without pain, Right. When you wake up in the morning, you feel no physical pain, there is nothing in there. But then we expand that, a life with no emotional pain and a life with no mental anguish. You know, so it goes on that way. And then we're in the definition of fitness, right? What you ask is now not are you healthy, but are you fit for something? You know, are you emotionally fit to deal with the grief, not emotionally healthy? Are you mentally fit to stand trial? You know, are you sexually fit to have sex? You're yeah. not sexually healthy. You need to be sexually fit, right? That's why optimization, health optimization comes first before performance optimization. And when you relate that to sex, it's just like you have to learn to do vanilla first before you can become a porn star. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so 
that's that, that's that's, a, that's a quote for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's definitely gonna get people to be okay. I gotta hear this. A doctor telling me vanilla sex porn star. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I agree on the yeah, point. So, yeah. So that's essentially the thing that I to your question about. You know, when people say, yeah, you know, there's even a question about, you know, the DNA oxidation, whether or not that's related to cancer, etc. What the fuck? You see, it's getting oxidized. Just keep an eye out for the cancer markers, right? And if you're not practicing, just shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, read the literature, say, well, I read in this literature that, that this, 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 and this, and these are not good markers. But have you tried it on someone? Have you tried taking care of someone and actually doing it? If you haven't, then just say, well, we're aware of it, right? I'm aware of all of those criticisms, really, seriously. But if it's working for your clients or your patients, because there's no, you ask them, what other marker would you use? And they can't recommend anything. No. Right? And that's the whole thing that's irritating about it. They criticize the marker that you use, that metabolic marker that you're using, and then they have no substitute for it. And then they have no experience with the current marker that you're using. It's just like, right? Yeah. So, that's how I respond, and that's why I still keep a very active health optimization practice because it's different. What you read, and this is now we now go to the topic of what's called translational medicine, right? What you read in literature, you know, doesn't directly translate to what you do in the clinics. And you will see very much so that there are a lot of podcasters out there giving out very good information and so on and so forth. And the patients or clients, when they come to you, think it's going to be that way. But when you see it, much of the failure of the protocols that are given to them is actually not due to the advice or the protocol or anything else. It's because of the person's behavior. Most people are poorly compliant, right? They, yes. Because the protocol can be a little bit complex, you know, up to 80% of the initial part, if you don't push them or goad them, or they don't have any motivation, you know, they will not take their supplements. So you have to have to, to do a lot of handholding and so on at the beginning to do that. It's a good thing that a lot of patients and clients are actually well-informed, but actually not them who's asking about the validity of your tests. You know, it's the doctors and practitioners who have never used them in their practice. So, you know, for me, it's like if they're using some fancy new, new test and so on and so forth, they don't need to justify it to me because I trust that they're experts in in their field, right? In the same way that, because, and of course they have experience with it. So it's the same, the same way. It's just like, and this is just like any practice. It's just like any practice. So I, I'm pushing for it to become actually a medical specialty in and of itself so that we're not just stuck with repair all the time. We can be doing maintenance. And work. that would be amazing to get this more accepted. Yes, yes. And I, I love the fact that we're, we've gone global. We have yeah. met you in London. Exactly. And I talked to yeah. Scott, who is in Silicon Valley, and I'm going to talk to Roland as well, who is in Canada. So this and, is yes, really... But yeah, my wonderful students. Yeah. Yes, and you've talked to Boomer also, right? Yeah. Or you've listened to... Yeah. Yeah. And he wants to introduce it to Europe. Yeah. And we have also someone who wants to... Jody, who we've met, uh, you know, to introduce it to Australia. As I said before, I did my calculus. There will be more health optimization practitioners than there will be doctors. Because the health optimization practitioners, they are more passionate about the health of their clients. Right? I call them clients because they're not sick. Right? They're more passionate. They're, and there's more of them. 
Yeah. You know, doctors, we have the mental shackles. We have this prison by which we were educated. And it's hard to get out of the prison. Even if the prison door is open, you know, we choose to stay inside that prison cell because it's a perspective that we're used to. You know, honestly, Madge, it took me three years to get out from this perspective. I had to trip so many times like, oh, my God, I'm looking at this as a disease again. You know, I'm not looking at it as a as a whole person that's networked. And now with an ecosystem point of view or a holobion point of view, it's easier. You know, if you stop looking at a person with eyes, nose, mouth, etc., and just look at them as an ecosystem of cells, it's easier to get them healthy. Yeah. Right? It's the wrong level of looking at it if you have to maintain health. If you're going to do disease, yeah, you take a look at the level of the heart, you know, the lungs and, and so on and so forth. That's disease. But if you're going to look at it at the level of health, you better take a look at it at the cellular level yeah. or intercellular level, intracellular level, etc. Future generations may look at it at a quantum level. Hey, you know. We'll see. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, we'll see. But right now, what can be measured, I stick to what can be measured, right? Because it's acceptable yeah. to the medical community. This is now clinically measured. Here it is. We can actually, before I used to get asked a lot, why are you giving your patients or your clients so much of these supplements and that? And my patients actually learned to answer back. He said, it's because Dr. Ted measured. Because they tell them, take out all of that because that's a typical doctor response, right? Take out all of those. You don't need blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, he measured it and I need it. Yeah. He said, would you like to measure it for me? So... You know, attitudes die hard, but, at, you know, uh, as uh, mitochondria, microbiota, epigenetics, and all of these are coming into the illness medicine conferences, you know, my favorite stories are those of cardiologists who called me up and said, Ted, you lectured this to us seven years ago. I'm here at the conference, and they're talking about mitochondria and microbiota. It's, I said, oh, yeah, now, so finally you're believing me. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it is to be a pioneer. <laughs> but it's fun. Yeah. So, Dr. Ted, where can people follow you or learn more about health optimization medicine? Yes, we are now a nonprofit organization, tax exempt nonprofit organization. It's at homehope.org yeah. um, or healthoptimizationmedicine.org. And you could see the origins there. There's our origin story in there. There is also the blue canotine that I mentioned that can overclock your brain without overheating it, is at transcriptions.com. That's T-R-O-S, like prescriptions, but it's transcriptions.com. I'll add it in the uh, show notes as well. Yes. Uh. And Instagram there is at prescriptions, right? And then um, in Manila, uh, where I practice four times a year and where I pioneered this clinical practice, it's a bybalanceinstitute.com. So that's where people can find me. I uh, try my best to stay in the background, but since I pioneered this, Young guys like you are pushing me, you know, to talk more. Do the podcast, get on social media. Yes. But as I said, I'm just the pioneer. This is a conversation of your generation, right? This conversation should be owned by you. It should be executed by you. You know, the landscape of it should be defined by you. I all did was just opened and took a look and, okay, here are the things that we've been missing. And this is how things are evolving And this is where your generation needs to take control. Yeah. Uh, a relaxed control, but a control nonetheless. Right? Yeah. My definition of expertise is that, you know, it's a relaxed control over a subject matter. So you guys should have that relaxed control over your health. We will try. 
So before rounding off, any uh, if you had to sum up one to three advice for the listeners out there. It's actually my free advice is always with my eight different things that you should do yeah. for an optimal life. Even if you don't get tested, it has to do with lifestyle. I, I always say sleep well, right? Hydrate well when you wake up in the morning, especially your body is dehydrated. Sleep well, hydrate well, eat well, right? Ground well, you know, uh, walk barefoot in the sand or in the grass. Sun well, expose yourself to the sun. It's a crime if you don't, especially when the sun is there for free and it also has uh, their beneficial effects on your mood. Move well, you know, your exercise, you walk. Until now, the study that walking two miles a day continuously without stopping uh, is still one of the best exercises out there. I tell my uh, the women, you know, if they go around in malls, not to shop, they just go walk around. Yeah. <laughs> Don't pick up something. <laughs> and then relate well. Right. So you have to examine the not only your relationship with other people, right, but your relationship to things in your life. Right. What's your relationship with your phone? Yeah. What's your relationship with your home? What's your relationship with your pet? What's your relationship to the events that are coming up? Because those are major sources of stress or happiness. Yeah. Right. And then love well. And that has to do with your with your sex life. And with your relationship with your significant others or with your orgy partners or whoever. That, <laughs> that, that, it's a very simple prescription, right? Very simple prescription. It ha all uh, has everything to your lifestyle. So the one thing I'd like to say is that sleep is very important. So in your schedule, make it the number one in your schedule. So begin your day with the time that you sleep so that you don't skimp on it. So by the time you wake up in the morning, item number one has been checked off. Yeah. Right? And then the, the first thing that I do is, of course, I after my daily meditation is I, I drink a, a couple of glasses of water. So you meditate sure. directly after you wake up? Yes, I meditate directly after we wake up. It's a gratitude meditation. And what I call... I am insignificant meditation where I imagine the Big Bang, you know, going, you know, from nothingness to Big Bang through the evolution of the universe and the galaxy and then the Earth and then the solar system, the Earth, and then there's me. And then I go, what's my problem again? I actually don't have any <laughs> because you feel so insignificant. Even when yeah. you travel, you know, you go to an old place, right? You see this granite that has withstood there for, you know, for a thousand, five hundred years, etc. They're still there and the people who built it are gone. So... In relation to your problem, oh my God, you know, my neighbor has uh, broken my fence. It's like, dude, you know, that granite wall is still up there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so how insignificant you are and, and your, what your problems really are. And then gratitude, you know, for for everything. Yet you're alive for another day for Christ's It's amazing. Um, I write a yeah, gratitude journal every night before I go to bed. Yeah. And then I, I practice 16 hours of fasting. So I, I just have a black coffee and I, I work at work in the morning. And then I have my first meal at noon. The fattiest meal is at noon. You know, the high fiber carbohydrate meal is at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And my proteinaceous dinner is around seven, seven thirty p.m. So that's an eight hour time span. And then to cheat, since it's winter here, although I'm going to, to Asia on Friday, I have a vitamin D lamp where I expose myself. It's the only 
place where I really expose myself. <laughs> As I vitamin up, sun, sun well. I do have a beach place where I go to, where I take off my shoes and walk in the sand in the weekends. But I also have a grounding mat in the place where I work, you know, where you could put in and ground yourself. I have a red, red light going at the back. I didn't buy this. I made this myself. You know, yeah. if you're handy, you could actually just get the specs and you could do these things yourself. So everything is incorporated in your lifestyle. You don't necessarily have to have anything expensive. Yeah. Even if you can get things checked, etc. you let your day flow, you know, according, according to those. Uh, and then the last advice is to have to get rid of your toxic relationships. If it happens to be your boss, you know, you better become the boss or you get out of your work. Yeah. So... <laughs> That's my that's my <laughs> advice. It's, it's very simple. Perfect. Dr. Ted, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me, Mads. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.